her sister Mary and for sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she was stuck in the kitchen doing all the work. And as many words, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're getting all worked up about all the wrong things. Your priorities are all wrong. Come out of the kitchen, sit at the feet of Jesus. I then thought about the most of the early books of the Old Testament, you know, the ones that we tend to skip over, but like say Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And they talk about the feasts and the festivals because instinctively, so often now in the 21st century, Christians, we go, ugh, feasts and festivals, I don't understand them. That's not for me. That's boring. It's not really relevant, but just pause on that because isn't it amazing that the first thing that God wants to do in forming a group of people and forming people and bringing them together to shape them and to mold them in his image, the first thing that he does is not Bible studies. It's not universities or seminaries or anything like that, but rather the first thing he does is he brings them together to have a party. And not just one party, but a whole series of parties, and they celebrate in different ways, and there's different particulars. But the idea was, hey, everyone, let's get together. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate the goodness of God. Each feast was a f- an opportunity to come, come aside and to worship. And I thought about the kitchen being a place where people can come together for good times and good food and think about the goodness of God. Now, maybe you'd have preferred that to where I'm actually going with this this morning. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Now, you want to keep your Bibles handy. We'll be bunching around a few verses over the course of the message this morning. Just while you're looking that up, have you ever heard the expression, you are what you eat? You are what you eat. Uh, we know what it means. It's not a literal thing, although... Um, I do eat a lot of potatoes, and that's perhaps why I'm small and round. I don't know. Um, certainly, if you eat a lot, a lot of ice cream sundaes, you will start to look like a big gooey ball. But what we mean by the phrase is that if your diet's unhealthy, you're going to be unhealthy. What goes into our bodies has an impact across the board. If our diet is healthy, we will be healthy. And if your diet is too high in sugar or salt or carbs or gluten or wheat or I don't know, whatever else that they're telling us that we all have to watch now, the body will be affected. We are what we eat. Well, let's go to Matthew 4. First one. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, here's my thinking this morning for our message, that if the kitchen is the place that dictates our diet, if the kitchen is the place that decides what we eat and we are what we eat, if the, pla- if the kitchen is the place where we decide what kind of things we will consume, the kind of things that will, will shape the kind of people that we are, the energy that we have, the dedication that we have, the discipline that we have in our diet, we're reminded here by Christ that we're going to need more than just bread. But we need the Word of God. In fact, it's a metaphor that carries through Scripture. In First Peter, uh, we're going to turn there now. In First Peter chapter 1, we were told to feed on the milk 
of the word. Sorry, in chapter two, we're told to feed on the milk of the the milk of the word. Then, of First Peter one, we read that we're saved by the word of God, and then going into chapter two, we read, therefore, this is First Peter two verse one. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, there's loads in those verses, so forgive me for rushing through it a wee bit, but what I see here is what is called the spiritual fatalism. Fatalism. The idea is that we'll say, well, this is who I am. This is the level of spiritual life that I have. This is as good as it's going to get for me. This spiritual fatalism, it's the idea of being stuck the way we are. This is all I'll experience of God. The level of spiritual intensity that I have at the moment is all I can expect, all I can have. Others may have strong desires to go after God. Other people may have deep experiences or or personal pleasures in God. I'm not going to have those because, well, just because I'm just me. I'm not those guys. I'm me, and I'm not like that. This, This is my spiritual life. That's fatalism, that this is all we can ever have. And it's tragic and it's toxic for for Christians and for churches because they never hunger or thirst for more of what God could give them. They never go chasing deeper into the Word of God. They never go after the things that God might have for them because, hey, well, sure, this is all there is to it. I do my wee bit on a Monday night at Campaigners or I do my wee bit on a Friday night at at Youth Creek or Youth Fellowship or I do my wee bit on the cleaning rota. I do my wee bit on, on the serving committee. I do my wee bit and that's all there is to my Christian life. And I'm resigned to that. I accept that. But this verse says, no, no, like newborn babies cry for their milk. Like newborn believers then should long for and desire the milk of the word. That's the comparison. You don't have to tell a baby that it's hungry. It instinctively will cry out for the milk. It doesn't even really know that it's milk that it's looking for. It just knows, I need something. Give me something. They just crave it. It's instinctive. It's desire. I'm hungry. I want some. I want more. What that means is that if you feel stuck because you don't have the kind of spiritual desires that you think you should have, if you feel stuck because you don't have the things that you feel that you should have in Christ, this text says you do not need to be stuck. It says go get them. Go get the desires that you want to have. If you don't desire the milk of the word, start desiring it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sorry. My whole problem is that I don't have these desires. Telling me just to desire it, you might as well tell a, a guy who can't walk to start running. Or you might as well tell him to start flying for all the difference it's going to make. You can't just start something that's not there. But it is amazing that here we have a command to desire, a command to feel, a a command to long for more. Which I think is why the kitchen is a perfect metaphor for this this morning. I I could be in my office uh, in the house, and I could be working away. All right, I've got books around me, I've got the the computer screen in front of me, and I'm typing away, I'm typing away, and I am... More than happy, just focusing and I'm getting lots done. I'm a momentum guy. I like to kind of just get into things and to get locked in. And then all of a sudden, hmm, Ruth's maybe 
baking with the girls, or you know, she was making pancakes this week, and she was making waffles this week, and, uh, or she's making dinner, and you kind of go right away, and then, ooh, pancakes. So, and then you go, okay, just get back into it, Jeff, focus, boo, 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 and you're just right away. But then all of a sudden, the momentum kind of gets disrupted. Because out of nowhere, a desire has started. There's this desire. Uh, there was no desire before, and I wasn't hungry. I wasn't thinking about food. I wasn't interested in food. I was, okay, Jeff, you're maybe no desire for food. Come on. No, no, genuinely, no interest in food. And I wasn't thinking about that. I was focused on something else. And then all of a sudden, ooh, something's came into my head. A desire that wasn't there before has started to come. It's a lot harder to work now. Momentum is lost. A desire has sprung up. Longings come out of nowhere. Smells, aromas. They can create desires and longing for the food that's being prepared. So how do you create an appetite for the milk of the word? Do you see the connection between the intense longing and craving for spiritual milk in verse 2? And then the tasting of the goodness of the Lord in verse 3? Put them together. Long for the spiritual milk because you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's what those verses are saying. So it seems to me that the milk of the word is the milk of God's goodness, is the milk of God's kindness. That is what we're in, in called to instinctively long for, that we're called to desire. Look for the goodness of God. The, the idea here is that the word, the milk, the basic message of God, the gospel, the gospel is powerful enough to create new believers out of people who were dead in sin. But that same gospel, that same milk is also powerful enough to nourish and to sustain languishing souls, to nourish those young babies in Christ. Don't be a fatalist. There is more to have in Christ. And you start when you are struggling, when you don't know how to desire more, if you feel stuck in your faith, you start in the kindness and the goodness of God in the gospel. Because that's what it says. That you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you are saved, you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you, if you, if you are truly saved, you've tasted that the Lord is good. Start there. Go back there. And it will create a hunger and a thirst for more of that. Because you're reminded of what it was. But let's move on. Because Paul then in Hebrews 5 tells us that, the, that the, for the more mature believer, while you still need sustenance, while you still need nutrition, you can't stay on the baby formula forever. You have to move on to the meat. If a child grows up and they're still wearing nappies and still need a bottle, you get concerned, you know? Come on, Kevin, you're 47 years old now. You really need to move on. You're breaking your mother's heart. You know, it, it, it gets weird after a certain point because you start saying, really, you should have outgrown this by now. Really, you should have moved on by now. Now, Paul has just written, sorry, has just written about how, uh, uh, well, maybe Paul, but maybe not Paul. We're not quite sure about who wrote Hebrews, but he, he's just written about how Christ is a high priest after, after the order of Melchizedek. And then that, in verse 11, he says now about this, about the order of Melchizedek, about the high priestliness of Christ, we have so much to say. And it's hard to explain 
not because it's hard to understand, but because you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you should be teaching this stuff. You should know this stuff and be able to explain it to others. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So let's be clear from the very start here. Paul isn't saying that if you're on the milk of the word, that that's wrong. If you're a child, if you're young in your faith, that you, you, you're still on the milk, that's okay. That's right. That's proper. You should be on the milk. It's natural for babies to still be on the milk. The problem is if you have Peter Pan syndrome or spiritual Peter Pan syndrome, where, you know, you've never really grown up. So how do you grow up in the spiritual things of God so that you can discern, so that you can be a teacher and not someone who's always having to be taught, who's always having to have something explained to them and not actually going out and teaching it to their children or teaching it to their neighbors or teaching it to their spouse or teaching it to the people around them. How do you get from that point where you're receiving it and only able to receive it to actually not only receive it but also give? How do we do that? The answer is not to serve the baby a steak. Sometimes that, that's what we try and do. We try and put stuff down and force people, force people to try and understand things or try to do things that they're just not ready to do. That's wrong. I remember I was in my mid-teens and I, I decided that, right, I have to grow up spiritually and I went out and got a book on Spurgeon's Prayer and Spiritual Warfare. Never read it. Way too deep. Don't understand half of it. It's all written in like old English and I was just like, Nope. <laughs> Down. And that was it. Ask yourself this question, though. If solid food, if the meat of the word, the deep, really tasty, the really good stuff, if it's only palatable, if it's only digestible by the mature, with what food then do you become mature so that you can get from the milk to the meat? How do you get from one to the other? If you can't give babies steaks, how do you get to the point where you can sit down into these deeper things? The answer is the milk. You become mature with the milk. You see, the key word there is, is in verse 14 uh, at the bottom. You have become mature by practice or, or exercise or habitual responses to the milk. The problem is that for some people, the milk of the word, the, the, that those joys and that deep uh, delight in the goodness of God and the gospel is not creating in you muscles of faith. It's not creating any desire or ability in you to go and do something. And then because of no, the, without the muscles of faith, then it's not producing acts of righteousness where you have the courage then to go and to do. That's how you grow from a baby Christian into mature Christian. You go from the milk of the word to the muscles of faith to the acts of righteousness. Now, when I wrote that down, I noticed that it wasn't quite right. It's true, I think, biblically, but it's not quite what the passage is saying. Verse 14 doesn't say that the milk of the word produces new muscles, but instead of new muscles, it says actually what it does produce is a new mind, a new mind. 
the mind that can discern between good and evil. That's how you know if you're maturing as a believer. If you're saved a year, you should know that there's some things that maybe you had been doing that aren't quite right and you should have adjusted by now. A few things. Maybe not, maybe not huge big things, but there's just a few things that are kind of going, okay, I'm going to maybe distance myself from that. If you're saved four or five years, again, a wee bit further on down the line, saved 10 years, 20 years, okay, it's not always a smooth transition. But as you grow up and, and you grow deeper in the things of God and you get into things, you suddenly realize, oh, the Lord has this way of revealing things to you. I, I remember it was something that, I had been saved a long time. And suddenly the Lord said, Jeff, have you realized that whenever you start a conversation, you always start it with the word, no, but. So someone says, no, but, as if to say, yeah, you're saying that, but I'm going to top it. <laughs> I had never realized this before. And I was like, Lord, how long have you been sitting on this for? <laughs> because it was really embarrassing. And suddenly, because oh, as soon as I, he pointed out, I was like, oh, yeah, I really do do that. And so there's ups and there's downs where you suddenly have these realizations and these things that happen and, you, and things are exposed and you can adapt and you can move on and you can grow. But that starts with a mind that can start to discern why these things are good or why these things are wrong. In other words, a new believer still only in the milk while it is right and while it's appropriate for a time can only mature into the more profound truths and the deeper joys of the faith once they start to identify that certain things are helpful and some things aren't. A pathway to maturity of, in biblical food is not just becoming an intelligent person. Someone with a high IQ does not mean that they're more mature. But just because they've memorized more of Scripture doesn't mean that they can apply it any better than anyone else. But becoming obedient, that is the mark of a mature believer. That's the mark of someone who's really getting their teeth into the meat and potatoes of Scripture. What you do with alcohol or what you do with sex or what you do with money or what you do in your spare time or what you do in your holidays or what you do with food or what you do on the computer. The capacity to be mature has got more to do with what, what you do with these things than any sort of school that you went to or what you got in your A-levels or your O-levels or your GCSEs or whatever they were called at the time you were doing them. So let me ask you this. In your life, in the kitchen of your life, if you are what you eat, are you on the milk of the word? Are you on the meat yet? Is that the goal? Or are we still as Peter Pan syndrome? Or worse, is it just a junk food diet? Let's move on to the third one then. We've got the milk, we've got the meat. What about the medicine of the word? Psalm 107, you're familiar with this psalm. It's the one that begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We know this psalm. But dropping down to verse 17, he's talking about God's people going astray. That, that's the context of this. That, that even though we are faithless, God is faithful. Even though that we are wavering in our relationship with him, God does not waver in his relationship with us. He doesn't waver in his love for us. That's what the psalm is about. So even though we're all over the place sometimes, God is consistent and constant in how he feels about us, which is a wonderful, wonderful truth. 
Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. In other words, their sin had consequences, and they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. It had an impact on who they were. Now, we could spiritualize that and talk about our spiritual food, talking about the Word. They, they didn't want to know about the milk of the Word. They didn't want to know the meat of the Word. They rejected it, or it could be a very physical thing. They, they, their sin had such dire consequences that they were literally on the point of death. But verse 19, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Verse 21 goes on, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds with songs of joy. Here's a picture of of people walking away from God. Let's say they were on their junk food diet. Sin has come in. There have been consequences. There's been affliction. They've rejected the food offered to them. All right. They are in a, they, these people were in a place where they could not, would not eat. Their, their diet was gone. They, they were not well spiritually, physically. All right. In, in Jewish thinking, they didn't have mind, body, soul as separate things. They had it all together. And so if they weren't whole, it was all these things were impacted together. But only when things got so bad, so bad that they were at the gates of death, when things got so critical, they began to come back to God, that they cried out to God again. So what did God do? What did God do to these people who had walked away from him? What did God do with these people who had no interest in in, in feasting on his word? Well, he didn't ignore them. You'll be glad to hear. He didn't lecture them either. He didn't scold them. Instead, he sent out his word and it healed them. Healed here, it means refreshed, restored, made whole again. Mind, body, soul, all together. All of us, excuse me, all of who we are, restored. Such is the power and healing that can be found in God's Word. Sometimes, whenever we aren't well, we need to amend the diet. If you've ever had the flu or a bug, you know, that sort of 24-hour, 40-hour bug, um, it's a horrible thing. Because you don't want to eat, you're stuck in your bed, and the idea of someone giving you any food, even your favorite food, it just turns you and go, oh, no, no, get that out of my, just, uh, you know, because it's Northern Ireland, just give me a wee slice of toast, just a wee slice of toast, a wee sip of water, a wee sip of water, a wee slice of toast. You would go through someone if they tried to ram down a big, rich, heavy meal, even if it's what you would normally eat. When we're sick, we don't have the stomach for those kinds of things. We need to go back to the basic things. If you are far from God, if you're fighting against this word, you don't want the milk, you don't want the meat, you don't want the pen attention, you want to go your own way and eat what you want to eat, consume what you want to consume, bring into your life the things that you want to bring into your life, and your soul is sick because of it, his word can bring healing you'll find that God is not interested in beating you up while you're on your sickbed or feeding you something that you're not going to be able to keep down, but something that will help you get back on your feet again. The right medicine can do that. It can get you up and going and eating again and back to yourself again. Remember what Jesus said? I haven't come to condemn the world 
but to save the world from condemnation? What about 2 Corinthians, which chapter 1 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. What about Psalm 119, verse 50? It says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. God's word can give us peace when we are in the middle of a wild storm. It can bring comfort when we are afraid, when we are tired, when we are worn out, when we don't know what to do, when we feel like just lying in our beds. We can have hope that he will see us through to the other side. Romans 15 tells us that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope the comfort of scriptures. I wonder if anyone is feeling hopeless this morning in church. Can I take a wild stab in the dark? Sorry, no. An educated guess, sorry. You find it hard to read. You find it hard to get any real time in God's word, aren't you? Now, there's always a reason why, but if you're being honest, the appetite isn't there for it. Either you don't want to hear what God has to say, or you don't care what God has to say, but you're not really all that bothered. Desire the milk. Desire the meat. Might as well tell you to fly to the moon. Start by taking the medicine. If you want to get back to God, that's how we do it. We get back to the Word and we find that comfort in God. And it gets us going again. It gets us back to the place that we're supposed to be. The best comfort that we can find in Scripture is the Gospel. Christ died for us when we were unlovable, when we were sinful, whenever we were so far from what we should be. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for me. He died for you. And so what's, whatever is going on with you, Whatever, however long you've been away or for however long you've been fighting this or for whatever it is, he loves you with a perfect, unchanging love and it is impossible for you to outrun his love. Impossible. And so run to him, cry out to him and you will find that he will send out his word and it will bring healing to your soul. The milk the meat, the medicine. We're going to stay in the Psalms for one more. See, I want us to see that in our kitchen, God's word is also sweet. It's, it's mouth-watering. Um, Psalm 107, from where we were, uh, verse 9 says that the hungry soul he fills with good things. Good things. I truly believe that as Christians, our kitchens should be just the best food. <laughs> That there should be some, that there is something about an exquisite meal, unlike anywhere else. But Psalm 119, verse 103, it declares this wonderful thing. David says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to the mouth. It's mouth watering. Mad, I want you to imagine, okay, in my head I've got like this kind of early 1940s black and white noir film going on in my head, okay? It's all black and white. 
and uh, there, there's this young couple, 17, 18, 19 years old. They're, they're truly, madly, deeply in love. You know the way they are in the films. It's all very. Uh, and, and they have this kind of real kind of passionate romance, but your, your, your partner is, is, is about to be deployed to the war, okay? So why, maybe she's a nurse or he's a soldier, okay? Whatever version of the story works with you, makes you comfortable, okay? And so they, they disappear. And the next thing you know, you're surrounded by all these other people who aren't being deployed, but they are fighting now for your affections. The, their, their rival, the person that you really love, they're away, they're out of the picture geographically. And so you find yourself being surrounded by suitors. They're trying to woo you. They're trying to entice you. They're trying to seduce you. And if you're being honest, you feel tempted. You don't know if they're coming back. You don't know if you're going to see them again. And there's something going on inside your heart. You're not quite sure. And so what you do is you go home. You open up the bedside table or you open up an envelope, you open up your phone, or you open up your computer, or whatever it is that you use, and you begin reading love letters that they sent to you while they were here, while they could communicate to you. And they read these words, and it fills you and reminds you of the love, and your love for them grows stronger as you're reminded of the words that are written that they have given to you while they were going to be away, so that you would know, that you would know how much you're loved. All of a sudden, temptation is resisted. All of a sudden, you're not interested in what these other suitors might have to offer because they're, you're able to be reminded of your true love's love for you. You might say that those love letters are sweet words. Our Bibles are not rule books. It's a love letter that reminds us that while there are so many other things vying for our affections, trying to entice us, trying to seduce us, trying to get us to go with a cheaper version of love, our true love is still the greatest love. And when we read it, we are reminded with what great love we are loved. Especially in times of temptation. Especially in times of trial. We, we go to His Word and we are reminded of the love of God. We're reminded how much he cares. We're reminded how much he's interested. I say, not these rules. Not. Nobody has to tell me that I have to be faithful to my wife. Because when we love each other, it's going to come automatically. It's going to be instinctive. Because love is a far greater master than rules and regulations. I said, I love, we're loyal. I don't love, not because someone says you have to be. And so it is with God. He reminds us of his love and we see who we are without him in scripture. We see who we are with him in scripture and through it all we can't help but be in awe of every aspect of who he is. I don't know, growing up, you ever get tired of your parents telling you, eat up, it's good for you. All right, now whenever they had to tell you that, you knew it didn't taste good. All right, because they don't say, look, oh, you like it. It's like, no, eat it, it's good for you. You're not winning any arguments that way. Thankfully, there are a few items on the good-for-you menu that go down um, a little easier than cauliflower or Brussels sprouts or whatever it happens to be, like honey, for example, honey. And not only does it taste good, it's scientific studies tell us that it's good for 
medicinally. It, it can help reduce cholesterol. It's loaded with antioxidants that help fight cancer, apparently. And a bit of honey and lemon mixed together with hot water is really soothing for a sore throat. In the food world, there's nothing quite like honey. No wonder then David uses it to describe God's word when he says, your words are sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, if we're honest, our attitude doesn't usually match up to David's. Do we really honestly think that God's word is so sweet? Or or for that matter, sweeter than honey? Usually it's more like, have to take it, it's good for me. Don't particularly want to, but you know, if I hold my nose, put it in, swallow it, I'll be fine. But when we engage the Bible with that attitude, is it no wonder then that it feels bland and flavorless to us? And yet when we read scripture, we see that when we are faithless, he's faithful. That's sweet. When when we're unloving, he is love. That's sweet. Or whenever we're lost, he'll seek us and find us. That's sweet. Or whenever we're weak, he is our strength. That's sweet. Or whenever we doubt, he holds the entire universe together. When I suffer, he'll turn it into something good. Or when I feel out of place, I know I have a father and a home in heaven. That's sweet to know. Don't just come to his word as if it's the first time you had to eat your greens. Shut up, it's good for you. Okay. Sweeter than honey. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word is milk. The word is meat. The word is medicine. The word is mouth-watering. And if we are what we eat, Christian, are you a man or woman of the word? Or is our diet made up more of Netflix and YouTube and magazines and gossip? Because, hey, we are what we eat. We are what we consume. We are what we put in. And my prayer is that you would begin to get a whiff from the kitchen of what could be. Put away the junk food that doesn't help or offer any nutrition or any value, but instead the sweeter room of what the Word of God can offer. That you begin to hunger and thirst and desire the mouth-watering milk, meat, medicine of the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be a church that hungers and thirsts for your Word. Lord, maybe there are some here this morning who have lost their appetite. Lord, I pray that you would restore that hunger. Lord, maybe we're just trying to live off yesterday's meals or last week's meals that we enjoyed long ago, but we haven't really got into it since. We're weak, malnourished. Lord, help us to feast on your word. 
Lord, that we might find strength in it, that we might find comfort in it, Lord, that we might find all that we need, Lord, that we might find you in your word, that through it you would speak, through it you would reveal yourself, through it, Lord, you would bring comfort, Lord, that you would bring your presence, Lord, that would lead us to a place of worship and joy, because we can say, like David, your word is my delight. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in the kitchens of our soul to eat well. We ask this in your name. Amen. Go on to the musicians.